Let me uh, open us in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for that, uh, the songs that we get to sing about your coming, about the, the birth of our Savior. And what a miraculous story it is, Lord, that you would come and take humanity upon yourself and dwell with us and save us from our sins. Lord, thank you for the gift of Christmas. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, your people would be celebrating around the world, uh, not just Santa Claus and um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and, and um, sales at department stores, but Lord, uh, those things are fine. But I pray, Lord, that you would remind your people of what the incarnation means, about Jesus coming to be with us and what a tremendous miracle that is. Lord, fill us with wonder and with praise as we consider this truth. And uh, Father, I pray for your church around the world, especially um, your believers in China who are being persecuted. Lord, in Chengdu, hundreds were arrested. And Lord, we have to remember in this time of um, of peace and harmony, this, this announcement of peace on earth. Lord, that your enemies are still being brought down and they still oppose you because they oppose your people. And so, Lord, we pray for the saints in, in China that you would be with them, strengthen them, give them uh, uh, security in their faith, uh, trust in you. And Lord, we pray that their enemies would fall, that uh, the persecution would end and that the gospel would continue to flourish in that nation. And Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to your word, as we hear this, this wonderful psalm and we understand more about who you are. Lord, be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in Advent, last Sunday of Advent. And Advent is this time of anticipation, looking forward to Jesus coming. And so we kind of try to rehearse what it would have been like for Old Testament saints to look forward to the coming of the Savior, not knowing the whole story yet, but kind of piecing it together. So this Advent season, we've been looking at different psalms that I call the Advent Psalms of Christ, these songs that were written singing about this coming Savior. Um, and so this morning, we're looking at Psalm 110, uh, the last one that we're going to look at. And the reason I picked Psalm 110 is because it is the most quoted one in the New Testament. It's just quoted a number of times. Uh, you remember last week I said it was the most widely quoted. Psalm 69 was, the, um, or Psalm 16 was the most widely quoted. It's quoted about four or five different verses. This one, it's two verses that are quoted quite a bit, and so that seemed like a good place to end. And uh, as I'm preparing for it, I thought, yeah, this really is not a bad place to end. This this will be really helpful. So what one Psalm 110 about is about is it's about David's Lord. That's what the psalm is all about. So what we're going to see this morning is we're going to get introduced in the first two verses to David's Lord. Then in the next two verses, we'll hear about his people and his priest. And then the last verses, we'll hear about his victory. And then after we've understood this from David's perspective, we're going to try to stick with what David saw there. Then we'll go to the New Testament and say, okay, well, what, is, what does the New Testament make of this? So this is going to be hard because if you've been a Christian for a while, you're familiar with these verses. You know these because they, they're quoted so much in the New Testament. So what I'm going to try to do is, is really push us back to look at it from what I think might be David's perspective before we go to the New Testament and see the fullness of it. So um, I know they just covered part of this in Sunday school, so it's, you know already is you know deck is stacked against me, but we're going to try. We're going to we're going to try our best here. So um, Psalm 110, the, the title is a Psalm of David, and you remember I've said when it says of David, we don't really always know what of means. Is it of as in by David? Is it of as about David? Is it of as in the style of David? Um, this is another one of those ones we don't have to guess. The New Testament makes it explicit. Uh, in the Gospels, when Jesus quotes this, he says, David said this. 
And not only does he say David said this, but he said David said this in the spirit. So we can just take a little sidestep here. What Jesus articulated was, first of all, David wrote this. And when David wrote it, it was his words, his experience, his expression, his emotions, his desires that he expressed in this psalm. He said it. These are David's words. And yet, the Holy Spirit said this. And that is really the Christian doctrine of inspiration is where you have these two voices saying the same thing. David expressing everything he thought in words he knew, experiences he understood, and the Holy Spirit coming in and saying, this is what I intend this to say and what I intend this to mean. So those two come together in that simple little title, A Psalm of David, as Jesus unpacks that for us. And so as we listen to this, we're going to hear from David, but then we'll also hear from the Holy Spirit. So that's our title. Um, the first two verses talk about David's Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is the introduction to David's Lord. Now, as we begin, as we move through this psalm, there's a couple of things we need to be very careful about. The first is, who's speaking? Whose voice are we hearing? So this begins with, the Lord says to my Lord. That's David reporting what the Lord said to his Lord. So this will be important as we go through this to try to understand what's going on, as I'll try to remind us who's speaking at this time, whose voice are we hearing. So that's the first thing to keep an eye on is who's speaking and who they're speaking of. The second thing is the word the Lord. Um, it has multiple meanings in this, in this uh, um, psalm. So if you look in your Bible or in, um, hopefully it's in the handout, the, the all caps Lord, that is God's covenant name, Yahweh. What it means in Hebrew is, I am. It is this present tense example of who he is. So when you see all caps in the text, that's saying Yahweh. But the Hebrews, the Jews, didn't want to pronounce the holy name. So they would say, instead of Yahweh, they would say Adonai, which is Lord. So that's why we translate it, the Lord. And that picked up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And some places in the New Testament say it that way as well. Um, so there's, that was the tradition. I'm going to try to use Yahweh just so we're clear. Um, and I don't think that's a violation of the Ten Commandments in, in taking the Lord's name. That's not in vain. <laughs> this, is, this is taking the Lord's name as he would intend to. So there's the Lord, Yahweh. And then there's the Lord. And that's the word Adonai which in Hebrew means my Lord, my King, my Sovereign, the one who is over me. And Adonai is used in a number of different ways, sometimes of God, but also of kings, of rulers, of men of power and authority. So David says, this is David's voice saying, Yahweh says to my Lord. So God is addressing, David is telling us how God addressed his Lord. That's why I said this psalm is about David's Lord. David has a Lord. David has someone over him. Who is that? Who is David's Lord? Well, we don't know right now from this. There's one thing David's Lord can't be. And, and there's a possibility that, that it could be, but in this case, we know it's not. In these days, in David's times, kings would go out and war against each other. They would trot their armies out, and they would go take over another uh, kingdom, and they would, they would uh, loot it. If they didn't kill everybody, then they would say, okay, we're going to make you uh, subjected to us. So here's the deal. You have to send us this much food, this much gold, and this much silver every year, or we're going to come back and do this again. And so that king would be called a vassal. He was subjected to the other king. And so that one king might call the other king my lord. So it could be David's talking like that, except it can't be. 
Because when you look through the Old Testament, you see David, he was never subjected. He was never defeated. What David did is he established his kingdom, he secured the borders of Israel, and he put down all the other nations. He was never beaten by anybody else. His son Solomon ascended to the throne. Solomon sits on his throne. He is never subjected to anybody else. So when David says, my Lord, he's not talking to some earthly power who's defeated him. We're just not sure who it is yet, but it's David's Lord. And so what does Yahweh say to David's Lord? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The right hand of the king was a position of authority, of privilege, of power, of favor from the sovereign. That's why James and John come to Jesus, and as they're heading to Jerusalem, they say, hey, Jesus, as we're going to Jerusalem, you know, when you establish your kingdom, we want to sit on your right and left-hand side. They wanted to be next to the king. They wanted to have those kind of positions of authority within the kingdom. The right hand of the king was a position of, of privilege and power. Okay, that's an earthly king. Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand, the ultimate king, the king of all of creation, the king who rules over all, the king who is sovereign, who will not be opposed, tells David, Lord, come and sit at my right hand. Sit with my power and my authority. As a matter of fact, that's why the next thing that he says is, the Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. The scepter was a symbol of a king's authority and his power, his, his right to rule. Do you remember in, in the story of Esther? Esther says, if I go in to see the king, unbidden, he will kill me unless he extends to me his royal scepter. That was the extension of his power saying, I grant you the right to be in my presence. So this, this scepter is this symbol of power and authority. And who sends that scepter forward? Yahweh does. David's Lord is going to go out and rule. He's going to go out and it says that he, he will rule in the midst of his enemies. But it's because Yahweh sends his authority, his power forward. That is the picture of David's king, a mighty ruler. God is on his side. He is so powerful, he will rule in the midst of his enemies. He won't be threatened by his enemies. He'll just establish his rule in the middle of them. So that's the picture of David's Lord. We'll come back to understand more of who he is in a moment. The next thing that we hear about is his people and his, his priest. So for a king to rule, he has to have, first of all, the authority to rule. And I think that's what that first portion established, is Yahweh established his authority. He also needs to rule over something. And so what he's going to rule over is he's got a people that he rules over. And we'll hear about his people, but also he has a priest. So here's his people. This is what his people look like. Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. One commentator, and it's an older commentary, but one commentator said, almost every word of this verse was rendered differently in different translations. So he was, he was saying it's really hard to get at this because everybody says it differently. It's, it's a difficult passage to translate, but there, he, he, he does redeem it. He says there is something we get from it, despite the various translations. I don't know if it's that dramatic these days, by the way. I think most of the modern translations largely agree, but this is what he says. But the general picture emerges of a host of volunteers rallying to their leader in a holy war. So that's what he talks about is the people that this king rules. They freely offer themselves. They desire, they, they see this army and they go, that's the army I want to enlist in. They didn't have to be conscripted. They didn't have to have the army show up and go, you're with us and dragged off to war. These people show up and say, this is, this is the king whose side we want to be on. This is the army we want to be part of because we are assured of victory. 
Yahweh is on his side. We're ready to go. Let's go. And so he goes out and they go out in this holy garments and they, they march off to war. Now, the New Living Translation is not my favorite translation. I think they gloss over some stuff that they shouldn't. But in this case, they did exactly what they should do. Here's, here's how the NLT translates it. He says, when you go to war, your people will serve you willingly. You're arrayed in holy garments and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. So if you've got an army like this, you don't have to be fighting to get your army in line. They willingly serve. That kind of a commander wakes up every morning refreshed. Let's go fight. Let's go to war. He doesn't have to, to drill his army all day to try to get him to go. They're willingly there. And so that's refreshing to him. So that's his people. His people are willingly there. They're in holy garments. They're dressed in holy robes. And they're ready to, to be allied with their king. Now the second one, verse 4 uh, this is a little tricky, um, and this is another time where we have to pay attention to uh, Yahweh and the Lord, and we also have to pay attention to who's speaking. So verse 4 is, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David is reporting again what, uh, what Yahweh says. So he's saying, God has said this. God has, has mentioned this. And the question is, who is he speaking? Who is God spoken, uh, speaking this to? Um, that's not quite as clear. You see, it seems like because of the context, it should be, well, he's been speaking to David's Lord. Surely this is David's Lord again, right? But there was a problem. You see, kings in Israel got in trouble when they assumed the role of a priest. It didn't happen too often, thank heavens, but it happened. So, for example, Saul, Israel's very first king, he is going to uh, get his army together. He musters his army, and he's going to go fight against the Philistines, Israel's perennial enemy. They're going to go out and wage war. Well, Samuel, the prophet, comes to Saul and says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Meet at this place, gather your army, and then you wait there until I show up, and I'll offer the sacrifice, and then you go beat up the Philistines. And so they assemble the army, and Saul is standing there, and Samuel's late. He didn't show up on the day he was supposed to. And as Saul is looking, his army is beginning to disperse. They're beginning to go home. They're like, well, I guess, you know, we're not going to have a fight. So Saul says, well, i got to do something. He takes the sacrifice and he offers it himself. This will keep the, the troops assembled. This will keep everybody together. And the way I picture it is he just finishes the sacrifice and then Samuel shows up. And goes, what did you do? What Samuel tells him is you have acted foolishly. And the bad news is, because you've done this, because you didn't obey Yahweh, he's taken the kingdom from you. You could have had a kingdom forever, but because you couldn't obey, it's over. And that's the beginning of David's ascent to the throne, as it begins to break there. So Saul took the step of offering the sacrifice, which he shouldn't have done. He wasn't allowed to do. And it cost him his kingdom. The other example is in 2 Chronicles 26. Um, King Uzziah. If you read through the story of King Uzziah, it starts so good. I think he starts reigning when he was 16, and he does everything right, and everything is going really well. The problem is, by, verse, by chapter 26, he's strong. His kingdom is established. And what it says is, he became proud. So since God established him, he thinks he's got all this power and this might. He decides, I'm going to go into the temple, and I'm going to offer incense to Yahweh. I'm going to go offer this incense to God. So he picks up a censer. A censer was like a bowl hung by chains. And you put coals in it, and then you'd sprinkle incense on it, and it would smoke. And so he goes walking into the temple with his incense 
ready to offer it to the, to the, the Lord. The priests try to stop him. You can't come in here. You're not allowed to do this. But he says, nope, I'm doing it anyway. And he goes in and he starts offering sacrifice. And what, what uh, chapter 26 says, immediately leprosy broke out on his forehead. Then the priests go, you really can't be here. He shouldn't have been there to begin with. He's not allowed to be there. Only the priests were allowed in there. But once you've become ceremonially unclean, an outbreak on your forehead, an outbreak on your skin makes you ceremonially unclean, he's rushed out of there. And he has leprosy for the rest of his life. Now, isn't it interesting? It was on his forehead, not on his back, not on his shoulders, not on the back of his legs where it couldn't be seen. Yahweh does it right on his forehead, so you can't miss what's going on. You see, Uzziah, for all his great kingdom, all his power, overstepped his boundaries. The role of priest was reserved not from the tribe of Judah, but from the tribe of Levi. Only the tribe of Levi was allowed to serve in this capacity. And so when a king overstepped his bounds and stepped into a priestly role, it was trouble. It was not good. So if this is speaking of the king, it seems like David would, would, would bristle at that for a moment. Wait a minute. No, I can't. You, the, my Lord can't do that. Um, the king is not allowed to be the priest. That's got to be something different. Now, there is a quirk here. There is a, there is a possible loophole. We might be able to get out of this. Because what he says is, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Levi. And only Levi, only Levi's family was allowed to serve in this capacity. This, this king, or this priest, will be a different order. He will be from a different line. He will be from the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so who's Melchizedek? Well, the Bible says precious little about him, but it's pretty cool. So here's, here's the story of Melchizedek, and maybe this will help us understand who this priest might be. Way back in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham is wandering in the promised land. Him and his family are just wandering around. Well, eventually his herds get too big, and his, his cousin Lot, the, his, their herds get too big, and their, their, tribes, or their herdsmen start fighting. So Abraham says, let's split. You pick whatever direction you go, I'll go the other way. So Lot heads towards Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a nice green pastures down by these cities, and that's where he settles. Well, like I said, in, in these old days, what kings would do is they'd go out and they'd trot out their army, and they'd go raid each other. And so five kings formed an alliance, and they come and they defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and haul all their stuff away. Well, all of their stuff included Lot and all his stuff. So when the word gets back to Abraham that his, his cousin has been kidnapped and, and taken in the army, he musters his army and he goes and he fights against these five kings. The New Testament calls it the slaughter of the kings. Abraham defeats them, wipes them out. He brings Lot back. He brings back all the stuff from Sodom and Gomorrah and he's heading home. As he's coming back home, he runs into a man, a man named Melchizedek. And this Melchizedek is introduced as a priest of El Elyon a priest of God most high. He's also introduced as the king of Salem. And what happens is they meet on the plain and the king of Salem, Melchizedek, brings out bread and wine and he blesses Abraham. He announces this tremendous blessing on Abraham from El Elyon. And then Abraham turns and gives him 10% of all the stuff he took in battle. And that's it. Then he's gone. So how does that help us that this priest is a priest according to that order, the order of Melchizedek? Well, the way I think it helps us is it is possible that Melchizedek was actually the king of Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem existed before Israel. Jerusalem was a known city. It was a fortified city. And when David ascended to the throne and wanted to move his kingdom, he said, I need to move from Hebron. Jerusalem looks good, but it's owned by the Jebusites. It was a city called Jebus. And so he goes up there and he gets the Jebusites. He takes them out and he establishes his city called the city of David on, on Mount Zion. So it's possible that Melchizedek was the king of that city at that time, years and years before David did that. Um, why would I say that? I, there better be some scriptural warrant, because when I first read this, I went, yeah, right. It turns out there is something that makes it possible. Psalm 76, verse 1 says, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. So it seems like the psalmist is calling Jerusalem by a shorter name, Salem. And so the theory is Jeru at the beginning means city of, and Salam or Salem is peace, so city of peace. So it's possible that, it, that that's where Melchizedek was the king. If that's the case, then a king, David's lord, could serve in that order because Melchizedek, first of all, was a king, and second of all, was a king in Jerusalem. And so David's lord could fit in that same role. It's, it's possible, but it's not clear. And so I, I think um, maybe the clearer answer, the, the, the more natural answer that David might have been thinking is that this king or this priest would be the priest for the king. And the reason I say that is in uh, 2 Samuel 20, uh, the author is telling us about David's, um, uh, David's cabinet, the, the people who rule with him. And what it says is in verse 26, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. So David had an assigned priest who would take care of his offerings and that kind of stuff. So that seems more like what David would have been thinking is, the, the people look like this, and my priest, my Lord's priest, will look like this, and he will be a priest forever, and he won't be like the Levites who will be according to the order of Melchizedek. It's going to be wonderful. I think that might have been more natural reading of it. Though, like I said, it could be that the, the, the Lord, the, David's Lord, could be a priest as well. So that's his people and his priest, and now we come to the last three verses, and we hear about his victory. What does David's Lord look like when he goes into battle? The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over all the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So again, we have to pay attention to the Lord versus Yahweh. And second of all, who is speaking and who is he speaking to? So you notice right at the beginning, it says the Lord is at your right hand. That's lowercase. That's Adonai. That is, my Lord is at your right hand. So who's David speaking to? Well, who did he say at the beginning would, his Lord would be at the right hand of? Yahweh. So David now in this last section turns to Yahweh and he says, my Lord's at your right hand. So he's addressing, he's addressing God and he's speaking about his king. And this is what it looks like for his scepter to, to go out from Zion. This is what it looks like for him to go out and rule in the midst of his enemies. He shatters kings in the day of his wrath. He, he, he will execute judgment, not just on the neighbors, but on the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Will his rule just be over a couple of other cities? No, this king is gonna, he's gonna be so successful, he will rule over the whole wide earth. So this is the nature of this king's victory, is he will rule everywhere, and he will be so effective, he will be such a, a wonderfully ruling king, he will have defeated all of his enemies, so look at what verse 7 says. 
What does he do after the battle? He bends down. He has no fear. There's no, no fear of anybody taking his head off at this point. He bends down and he drinks out of a brook. Because he has nobody who's going to come up and stab him in the back. Nobody who's going, to, who's going to chop his head off while he bends down. So he bends down and he drinks out of the brook. He's refreshed after this battle with the peace that he's won. And it's just beautiful, serene picture. You know, hear a, bla- a babbling brook in your head. And now watch this king bend down and, and take the water in his hands and, and sip. And therefore, he will lift up his head. He stands back up and he's victorious. So this is the nature of David's Lord's victory. This is what it looks like. So let me just summarize real quick the picture that we just got of David's Lord. What does it look like for David's Lord? First, his throne would be at Yahweh's right hand, would be a position of privilege and power, celestial privilege and power. His scepter would move at Yahweh's commands. Yahweh would take his scepter out, his real, uh, rule out or um, roll out his authority and his rule. His rule would be secure in the midst of his enemies. His enemies won't stand a chance. They can't oppose him. He will, he will rule in the midst of his enemies. His people would willingly join an army like that. They would gladly be part of something like that. And his priest will be established forever. His priest will never stop ruling. And what will happen is this king, this, this lord of, of uh, David's, will rule over the entire earth. And in the end, he will bring peace. There will be peace because he will have defeated all the foes. So that's the picture of David's king. David's, David's Lord, if you will. So how is this a Christmas story? How does this tie into the Advent, looking forward to um, the coming of the Christ? Well, to get that answer, we need to look at how does the New Testament look at this? How does the New Testament handle this, this psalm? And the first one is verse 1 is quoted a number of times or referred to a number of times. Where it's quoted the most is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They refer to it a number of times, and it's actually uttered on Jesus' lips. Jesus is the one who says this. So um, just to pick one that I think kind of summarizes the, the thought, I just grabbed Mark. So Mark 12, verse 35 through 37, this is what Jesus says. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, or put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So that's, that's a Jesus, and, and the response in the different gospels is either the people were amazed or the foes shut up. They, they couldn't answer it. They didn't know what to say about this. So here's what Jesus is saying. is He's saying, you people have been looking for the son of David to come and to rule. He's going to come in and he's going, to, he's going to vanquish the Romans. He's going to purify the city. He's going to establish the kingdom. And you've been looking for a human to come and do that. And he says, You're, you don't understand the scriptures. Even David himself called this person his Lord. David would not call one of his sons my Lord. He never referred to Solomon that way. He said, my son. But he never said my Lord. So is Jesus saying, well, that means that the, the Messiah is not going to come from the line of David? Absolutely not. I don't think that's what he's getting at at all. I think what he's saying is, you're thinking too small. If you think that, that David's son is just David's son, you're missing the point. David's son has to be much more than David's son because David calls him my Lord. So he's throwing this question at them and saying, who do you think I really am? Who do you, who do you think I, I am here? What do you think is going on here? What he points out is that David's son would be greater than David, more than David. Not that he wouldn't be David's son. 
The next place that refers to this is Hebrews chapter 1. And in Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews is writing this letter and he's saying, basically the message of Hebrews is Jesus is better than, fill in the blank. Whatever you have to offer, Jesus is greater than that. So in the first part, in chapter 1, the author is going through and he's saying, to which angel did God ever say? And he quotes a number of different psalms, and one of them is 110. So he asks the question, which angel did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? He would never say that to an angel. But he did say it to David's Lord. So what the author is saying is the same. He's kind of answering Jesus' question. How can David's uh, son be his Lord? And he says, what the author of Hebrews says is, because he was more than that. He was more than David's son. He was even more than the angels. He was Yahweh's son. And that's how he could say, sit at my right hand, is because he was greater than all of that. So that's Hebrews answering that question. The other place that, uh, that this psalm is brought up is in Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, you remember the story in Acts chapter 2 was the day of Pentecost. Forty days after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, Pentecost happens. So the church is assembled, they're hiding out in an upper room, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they burst out into the city streets, preaching the gospel about who Jesus is. Why? Because the Holy Spirit powered them. He empowered them, he settled on them, he led them out, and they begin to preach. And the crowd looks and says, why are we hearing everybody speaking in our own tongues? These guys are all from Galilee, they can't speak our language. And the answer is, well, they must be drunk. And Peter's response is, we're not drunk, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And what he then begins to do in his message is he unpacks, here's why this is happening. This is what the scripture said. This is what Joel said would happen. And he begins to explain, this, this is nothing, this shouldn't surprise you. Because Joel promised that the children would prophesy and the old men would dream dreams and, and these wonderful things would happen when the Messiah came. And then he begins to speak about Jesus. And what we saw last week was he said, this Jesus whom you killed he couldn't be dead. He can't be dead because he rose again from the grave. David said, your holy one won't see corruption. Well, look, you guys, David's tomb is right here. David saw corruption. He wasn't speaking about himself, but Jesus has died and he's risen again. He won't decay. He won't fade away. So he's the only person that could possibly fill the role of David's son. And then he goes on in the next section, and this is what he says, starting in verse 33. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God. So he's talking about Jesus. Not only did he die, not only did he rise from the dead, but you guys, I stood on the mountain and I watched him ascend into heaven. He has gone into heaven. He's alive and he's in heaven. And here's what this means. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Why are we speaking in different tongues? Why are we so bold to proclaim this message? Because Jesus has ascended into heaven. He has taken his seat of authority, and by his power, he has dispensed the Holy Spirit to us. Because he has risen, he's done that. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Made him Lord, David's Lord. Made him Christ, the son of David who would ascend to the throne. And now he's sitting exactly as Psalm 110 promised, sitting at the right hand of God with all that authority, all that privilege, all that power, and by his will he dispenses the Holy Spirit. 
That's why you're seeing these things. That's the answer. So the New, Te- the New Testament picture of, uh, of this coming Messiah fulfilling Psalm 110 is that he's greater than David. He's, he's a king like David, but even greater than David. He's greater even than the angels. And the other thing that it tells us is that this king can be the priest. He can be the priest who sits on the throne. So Hebrews clears this up for us. It it cites this about four times in a pretty short scope. But the one that I think kind of encapsulates the the message that the author of Hebrews is saying is this. He's looked at the tribe of, of Levi. So there are 12 tribes, 12 children from Judah, who's named Israel, 12 tribes. They each have different things. The tribe of Judah would have a king. The tribe of Levi is given the right to the priesthood. So if you're a child of Levi, a child of Aaron, who's a child of Levi, if you're in that group, you get to go into the temple and offer sacrifices. If you're not in that group, if you're the rest of the tribe of Israel, you're called a Levite, and you go help those guys. You clean the temple, you you haul away the ashes, you do these different service things. So that was reserved for the the tribe of of Levi. So the author looks at that, and he's talking about this, this tribe of Levi, and he says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The order of Levi is fading away. The order of Melchizedek is going to be established forever, just as Psalm 110 said. And this king doesn't go into a building made with human hands. He doesn't go behind a veil that somebody wove and hung up in the temple. This king, since he's ascended into heaven, since he's seated at the right hand of God, he's entered into the real tabernacle, the real temple, the real place of God. He's standing before the real presence of God, not the earthly manifestation of it. And then he says, listen to this, he says, We have an anchor for our soul. We go with Jesus. He is the anchor of our soul. He goes behind the veil. He goes into the presence of Yahweh, and he sits down forever. If we're tethered to him, if he's our king, if he's our priest, we have eternal, perfect access into the Holy of Holies. That's the picture that the author is is painting. So this is how this priest can actually be the king and the priest at the same time, because he's not dealing with the tribe of Levi. It's something much more ancient than Levi, something much more important than Levi. As a matter of fact, what the author of Hebrews says is, Abraham offered tithes to this king. So therefore, Levi, in a sense, offered tithes to this king. This means this king, this priest Melchizedek, is greater than Levi. So if you understand that, then you see why it is that Jesus is our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, this greater king, this more perfect king this king whose life will never end, this priest who goes into the inner temple. So that's the picture of our David's Lord. As we understand it now from the New Testament perspective, this is our Jesus. So think about this for a minute in the context of Christmas. This powerful, majestic king who's going to ride out and defeat his enemies, who's going to bring in utterly, uh, ultimately peace upon the earth. How did he come? How would you expect him? If you had just read Psalm 110, knew nothing about the New Testament, how would you expect this king to show up? Man, he's going to show up in a palace. He's going to be born to royalty. He's going to grow up just knowing how to wield weapons and lead people. And he's just going to be this awesome king. How did the king actually show up? Born in a manger. He wasn't raised in a palace. He was raised in a carpenter's home. And when he began to go out and tell people, this is the nature of my kingdom, 
They hated him. And ultimately, because he claimed to be a king, they killed him. It was not what anybody was expecting. It wasn't the king that we were looking for. And the reason is because what we see in Psalm 110 is not his first coming, not his advent, his first advent, but his second coming. So Jesus comes in the first instance as a a lamb who, who doesn't talk back when he's being persecuted, who won't answer when he's put on trial. He comes as a lamb and he dies. That was the picture that Christmas The the picture that Christmas paints is of this king doing that. Why would this triumphant, majestic, all-powerful king come and die? Because we're thinking too small if we think he's going to defeat our enemies, the Romans. He's going to defeat our enemies, ISIS. He's going to defeat our enemies, the tax collectors or the bill collectors or something. We're thinking way too small. Those, Those enemies can be easily defeated. The enemies that you can't touch are the ones that he destroyed. That sin. As the priest, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to take away sin forever, not repeatedly offered over and over again. He defeated sin. You couldn't do that. He defeated death. He didn't defeat death by resisting it. He defeated death by taking its full measure upon himself, succumbing to it, dying, actually laying in a tomb. And then something that death could not stop as he stood back up. He defeated, he broke death. It's busted. Forever. He, he defeated hell because he's defeated our sin, because he's defeated death, he's defeated hell. There's, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Our high priest in his heavenly throne, in the Holy of Holies, now has defeated the prospect of hell for us. So that picture of him riding out and destroying his enemies, what are his people doing? His, his host, right? They, we all enlisted. We all ran out to the battlefield. We all lined up. And what do we do? We watch as the king rides out and destroys all the enemies. We say, go get him, king. How do you wind up in that enlisted army instead of on the other side of the battlefield? Well, that's where Jesus is calling us, trust me. Just, just trust me. I know it looks like I was defeated, but I have risen again. I know it looks like I'm gone, but I've ascended to the throne in heaven. I'm sitting at the right hand of God. So all I'm asking you to do is trust me. That's why the people willingly offer themselves. He's asking us, will you just put your hope in me and trust in me and watch me go? Watch what I'll do. I have defeated your foes. And the way he defeated our foes was by the full divinity, the eternally begotten Son of God, taking on human nature, not at 18 years old, but at, at, as a single cell in his mother's womb and growing and, and doing all the same things we would do yet without sin so that he could be a sympathetic high priest. He could say, I understand that temptation. I know what it's like to feel like that. He's defeated our foes. And that's the promise of Christmas. That's, that's what we're looking for as, as, as we look forward to the birth of the Messiah is to have Psalm 110 explode in a way we never would have thought of. The king we didn't anticipate. The sovereign who is much greater than anything we would have guessed at. And to be totally surprised when he comes as a baby. This this king whose scepter goes out from Yahweh, who who, um, rests in the midst of his enemy, lays in a manger crying and will starve to death if his mother doesn't pick him up and nurse him. And yet he's all-powerful. And that's the mystery of Christmas. That's that's what we're looking forward to and anticipating is that king, that priest, 
coming for us. Will you put on the holy garments and meet him on the battlefield? That's what he's asking us. That's what Psalm 110 promises us, is what we do is we don't go out and fight his battles. What we do is we show up and we watch and we're amazed as he wins his battles. And we're blessed because of it, because he's our king, he's our high priest. Let's pray. Lord, we'll in a few days remember your birth. We'll celebrate your birth. And Lord, it, it gets in our, in our culture, in our setting, it gets confused with all sorts of other things. Um, Santa Claus and, and Frosty the Snowman and Reindeer and Jingle Bell Rock and all kinds of other things. And, and Lord, those are all fine cultural celebrations and they're fun. But Lord, I pray that we, your church, would not forget what actually happened at Christmas. That our king came into our situation, into our world, to reign and to rule and to be our priest. And so, Lord, as we celebrate um, jingle bells and all those other things, I, I pray that, Lord, we also would hear the words of the, the uh, Christmas carols that we sing and be amazed, Lord, that other kings came to honor you. Father, would you generate in us an honor for that king? Would you cause us to trust in him, to look forward to his victory, and to believe, Lord, even when we're facing trials like our brothers and sisters in Chengdu, would you cause us to remember, Lord, that you rule in the midst of your enemies and you won't be defeated? Lord, help us to have a Merry Christmas. We pray these things in his name. Amen.